This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. To purchase this book, go to AmericanVision.org. The Problem of Slavery in Christian America, an Ethical Judicial History of American Slavery and Racism, by Dr. Joel McDermott, narrated by Joe Salon. Copyright 2017, published by American Vision. Thus begins Part 2, The Role of the Churches. Chapter 7, The Church, Racism, and Slavery. From the earliest days of slavery in the Western world, and even in its earliest inception among Portuguese traders, some version of Christianity stood ready to baptize the effort. Never denying its evils totally, Christians, Christian monarchs, churchmen, and clergy all stood ready to rationalize their involvement. From the transatlantic trade itself to the treatment of slaves, to the segregation laws and persecutions that followed emancipation, with some form of religious appeal. What began as rationalizations grew into a strong and elaborate defense that eventually pervaded the American South. Some resistance did appear early, but only to meet a surprisingly well-developed defense from history, nature, reason, and interpretation of God's word almost instantly. By the time of the reaction against abolitionism in the early 1830s, the church, particularly in the South, but lingering for some time in the North as well, had transformed from an institution that could show eagerness in many cases to check the evils of slavery to one largely dependent upon defending it and then to the most outspoken and eager champions of the system. Most of the elements that went into this transformation will seem familiar enough to us even if the main issues upon which they centered have long since changed, although some have not changed much at all. Those familiar elements did not die with the Civil War, as the simplistic rendering of its history tells us slavery did, but continued for another century or more. While things like the institution of slavery, slave beatings, slave ships, and even segregation may seem like distant issues to us today. The legacies, and in some cases the realities of some of them, lie within the historical memory of many people living today, some of whom suffered directly from them. Other parts are not as distant as we may have once thought. Convict leases, etc., the whole history of those enduring legacies has included the open approval of evangelical churches, some in the North to various degrees, but certainly in the South. Even when the Southern evangelical denominations officially condemned certain acts, such as lynching in the 1920s and 30s, local churches tended to remain silent when those evils were perpetuated in their own backyards. The legacy of the church's involvement with slavery and racism, sometimes in its ugliest forms, extends much more thoroughly and intensely than the vast majority of Christians today probably imagine. In a word, 
It's simply harrowing. But as difficult as it may be to hear, let alone admit, it needs to be received and owned. American Religious Society and Slavery Pilgrim and Puritan societies entangled themselves in slavery and the slave trade almost immediately after arrival, if not before. The Jamestown Colony, where the earliest Africans were bought, harbored forces, including clergymen that had direct involvement as well as direct ties to the financing of slave privateering. To prepare ourselves for what follows, it is helpful to consider some less familiar background about the actual religious life and outlook of some of those earliest settlements. American society was less religious and far less devoutly Christian than we have often heard. Colonial Religion and Slavery Many Christians, especially those informed of the Christian foundations of early America, have often not received the full picture, and thus often assumed an idealized picture. Tremendous Christian influence certainly existed, and in crucial places, doctrines, laws, and social attitudes, but it was never as either pure or pervasive culturally, as some have argued. Even the first group to come over on the Mayflower included a mixture of believers and unbelievers who brought with them personal ambitions and agendas. This remained true during the whole Great Migration to New England. Throughout the Puritan era, ministers complained that most of the population was chiefly interested in making money and getting ahead, with less concern for Christianity. The southern colonies were especially mixed from early on. Many of the early settlers mingled orthodoxy with superstition and white magic. Enter the home of any given settler and you are likely to find occult books right next to Bibles with surprising frequency. Astrological almanacs, in fact, outsold them and townsfolks could easily consult with a local witch or a medium as they could a clergyman. Divided loyalties matched lax attendance. In Middlesex County, Virginia, in 1724... Only about a third of the white adult citizens joined churches. Things seemed to have been even worse in town. In the same year, the only church in Baltimore, St. Paul's, could claim only a paltry 25 members out of 400 families, meaning church membership totaled probably less than a couple percent of the population. Despite the efforts of the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, a missionary arm of the Anglican Church, founded in 1701 precisely to meet these issues, the unchurched populations and unfilled pulpits persisted. Not including misleading claims made by the state denominations, church membership in 1776 averaged only 10 to 12 percent nationally and even less in the south due to its mostly unchurched slave population the social climate reflected the religious and this affected how the church reacted to the culture all too often the church functioned in ways that combined secular needs with spiritual ones in a traditional english way that enhanced social life, but not necessarily religious aims. 
People did not gather at church on Sunday to worship or hear the word so much as to gossip, display power and wealth, or make plans for business or entertainment. In a society that measured manliness often by feuds and violence, where defensive honor meant quick resort to fists or blades, and that was among the gentlemen, ministers found themselves either helpless or complicit. In the year of Bacon's Rebellion, and just across the Potomac from it, Reverend John Leo recorded how regularly the Lord's Day is profaned, religion despised, and all notorious vices committed. He called his southern Maryland a Sodom of uncleanliness and a pest house of inequity. Still, a generation later, William Gooch, governor of Virginia, reported to the Bishop of London how gross ignorance and heathenish rudeness and utter unconcernedness for the things of God filled the land. Many parishes are even at this day like churches in newly planted, not well formed. The frontier was even worse, according to a historian contemporary with Jefferson. Its rough-and-tumble characters remained illiterate and neither affected by law or gospel. The same could be said for all areas of life, including the slavery and race issues. When they should have led the way in biblical example and reform, clergy themselves sometimes proved the most callous. A slave-holding Anglican minister in this era supervised the beating of one of his runaways, when the lashing turned from brutal to fatal, the minister shrugged. Accidents will happen now and then. Benjamin West, a lawyer employed by a large plantation in South Carolina, wrote to his minister brother in New England in 1781, relating the local sentiments that a white man will shoot a Negro with as little as motion as he shoots a hare. Before emancipation, clergy in the northern colonies showed little difference. The Congregational Puritans, in the early 1700s, held slaves without scruple. In at least one instance, in fact, the church paid its minister to part with a slave stipend, 20 pounds toward the purchase of his Negroes. By 1757, Minister Peter Fontaine saw the institution as indispensable. To live in Virginia without slaves is morally impossible. The problems with lax membership and professing belief would begin to change with the First Great Awakening, 1730s to 1740s, and even more so later with the Second, which was the first half of the 19th century. But without a comprehensive challenge to social ethics and manners, honor, etc., a growing church body would mean little more than spreading religious sanction to injustices and violence. Between 1840 and 1861, churches and their wealth in the South grew at unprecedented rates between 20 and 50 percent, yet church leaders made very little, if any, advance in social ethics and justice. Perhaps the greatest was what little move there was toward evangelizing the slaves, and even this was compromised. 
Thus, the period would end with some ministers' candid confessions after the war, such as Georgia Methodist minister John Caldwell's in 1865. If our practice had conformed to the law of God, we would not have suffered the institution to be overthrown. He asked, who among us has ever lifted up a true manly, martyr-like remonstrance to the crying evils of slavery? There has not been one martyr to the principles of true conservatism. The society, still stiff-necked, ejected Caldwell from his pulpit rather than bear the insult of hearing their own failure. Revolutionary Religion Anti-slavery sentiment had existed among a few in New England and Pennsylvania as early as the late 1600s. The Puritan judge Samuel Sewell published the anti-slavery tract The Selling of Joseph in 1700. Quakers in Germantown, Pennsylvania had presented remonstrations in the local assembly in 1688, but without much success. In 1693, then-Quaker George Keith published the first printed protest against slavery, which we will discuss in a later chapter. These stirrings of righteousness, however, remain the view of the vast minority throughout most of the 1700s, relegated mostly to Quakers and their associates. But after decades of Puritan and congregational preaching on the ideals and forms of liberty, some sentiments, in the North anyway, began to change. In the swell of patriotism that filled the decade leading up to independence, some thinkers began to discern the tension between preaching liberty while driving slaves. One preacher and later U.S. congressman from Vermont Nathaniel Niles preached a sermon in 1774, making just that connection. He said, We have boasted of our liberty and free spirit. A free spirit is no more inclined to enslave others than ourselves. If then it should be found upon examination that we have been of a tyrannical spirit in a free country, how base must our character appear? And how many thousands of thousands have been plunged into death and slavery by our means? When the servant had nothing to pay, and his master had frankly forgiven him all, and he had gone and cast his fellow servant into prison, there to remain till he should pay the last farthing, the master justly punished his ingratitude and severity with the like punishment. Hath not our conduct very nearly resembled the conduct of that servant? God gave us liberty, and we have enslaved our fellow men. May we not fear that the law of retaliation is about to be executed on us? That we can object against it? What excuse can we make for our conduct? What reason can we urge why our oppressions shall not be repaid in kind? Should the Africans see God Almighty subjecting us to all the evils we have brought on them? And should they cry to us, O daughter of America, 
who are to be destroyed. Happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Oh, could we object? How could we resent it? Would we enjoy liberty? Then we must grant it to others. For shame, let us either cease to enslave our fellow men, or let us cease to complain of those that would enslave us. Let us either wash our hands from blood, or never hope to escape the avenger. Despite a rising spirit of liberty and equality, such language provided only the exception to the rule, and ending slavery would not come easily. There would be difficulties and delays in securing emancipation even where slavery was unpopular and relatively insignificant, let alone in areas deeply dependent upon it. Even the Quakers, with the most powerful religious sanctions and most delicate social instruments of persuasion, had a long and difficult time of ridding their own sect of slaveholding. Even when they could overcome the internal hurdles, external pressures could pose even more significant difficulties. Opposition to a greater increase of free blacks met with hostility and even threats of violence in both the South and the North. The Northern Churches Even anti-slavery forces could work mainly from racist motivations. Sewell's The Selling of Joseph in 1700 urged fellow Massachusetts Puritans to end slavery and the slave trade primarily because he thought a large body of blacks would weaken the commonwealth. They could never be integrated, he argued, because there is such disparity in their conditions, color, and hair that they could never embody with us and grow up into orderly families to the peopling of the land but still remain in our body politic as a kind of extravasat, imported alien blood. When Sewell perceivably lost a very public dispute over ending slavery with slave merchant and judge John Saffin, his biblical and rational arguments against the practices lost repute, but the racist appeals remained indefinitely. Even after the process of emancipation began in the North, racism still held sway in the churches just as in society. In parallel to the civil black codes, churches moved to segregate blacks as well, ever reminding them of their place, even among the brethren, was the same as it was in the northern street schools and marketplace. Most churches forced black brethren into segregated sections of pews labeled African Corners, Nigger Pews, or BM, Black Member Pews, or sometime a choir loft labeled Nigger Heaven. Whites fiercely protected their own section from intrusion from blacks. During the time when pews were rented or owned by paying individuals, a black man in Boston once obtained a white pew due to an outstanding debt. He was warned not to stake the spot, 
but to sit instead in the black pews where he was told he belonged. When he braved the risk, he found a Philadelphia constable guarding the pew. He decided it wasn't worth it after all. In another case in Randolph, Massachusetts, a black man even won a legal suit for his ownership of a white pew only to turn up on Sunday morning and find it covered in tar. If the place of blacks in the building had to be regulated, their place at the table certainly did. In segregated churches, it was a regular feature that blacks would have to wait to take communion after all the whites had already gone, clearly in violation of 1 Corinthians 11.21. Black Christians reacted differently to the obvious violations of brotherly love. Some submitted to the ignominy, some simply left, some left in groups to form their own churches, in November 1787, a group of blacks organized to resist newly segregated pews in St. George Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia. A standoff ensued in which the whites threatened to call the police and physically remove the group, which then left to form its own church. Leaders such as Frederick Douglass, who despised the segregated churches, nevertheless considered the move into separate black churches even worse, calling them Negro pews on a higher and larger scale. If any reasoning could justify a segregated church, he argued, the same reasoning would justify segregated everything. Douglas's fellow North Star writer, Henry Bibb, expanded on this. I see no more use in having a colored church exclusively than having a colored heaven and a colored God. The better remedy Douglas offered was a little real resistance. Segregated pews? He counseled blacks rather to stand in the aisles and rather worship God upon your feet than become a party to your own degradation. You must shame your oppressors and wear out prejudice by this holy policy. He continued, Colored members should go in and take seats without regard to their complexion and allow themselves to be dragged out by the ministers, elders, and deacons. Such a course would very soon settle the question and in the right way. A broad racism led to a widespread refusal to help the emancipated blacks. Even apart from racial prejudice, contemporary social values provided little justification for the rehabilitation of the ex-slave. In no state or colony were there effective institutions for the support or education of slave children. It is enough to indict northern society in general for such failures, but the church deserves special blame. The church in all ages ought to be at the forefront of forming the contemporary social values. The church, therefore, should have led the development of all the needed institutions for the support and education of black children. Instead, the church only begrudgingly let them in the door only to sit where they could not be seen. For these northern Christians... The doctrine, love your neighbor as yourself, apparently allowed for strict limitations and wide caveats. It apparently meant they should not keep black believers out of their building. 
but they could keep them as much as possible out of their sight. As little as they treated blacks as equal brethren, even less so they did provide outreaches to meet the needs of their impoverishment, education, work, training, investment, or anything else. As a result, liberals, Marxists, and other social progressives ended up creating the outreaches or alleged helps through government programs and won the religious and political allegiances of the majority of blacks for decades to come. The double standard seen in the church's blameworthy relations with the black brethren was a classic religious rationalization in which Christians compromise or even ignore their core principles in order to accommodate the acceptable social mores of the world in which they live. Few have shown the desire to resist the social order much at all, let alone prophesy against it, either when it mattered or when doing so would have required much of a price. The vast majority have adjusted the interpretation or application of their doctrines to justify an easier or more profitable course of behavior. This had been the norm for Christians and Christian leaders in relation to blacks and slavery from the very beginning. Many northern forces would have preferred to leave the slave system in power, and some fought against church leaders who expressed any support for abolition. When Unitarian minister William Furness preached his first anti-slavery sermon in 1839, some wealthy members of his Philadelphia church sitting before him held investments in southern slavery, in one case between 200 and 300 slaves. After his sermon, he received ugly notes inquiring how long he intended to preach such obnoxious doctrines and that he would be better off to preach nothing else but Jesus Christ and him crucified. As he continued, members left and others threatened to withhold crucial funds. As the tensions mounted towards the war, the interest grew more candid. After John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry associated abolitionism with violence among its critics, Northern conservatives organized a great union meeting in Philadelphia. When rumors spread that they had welcomed with the abolitionist furnace, they published their view that their business relations with all sections of the country are such as to interweave her interests with those of the South as well as the North. Her prosperity is dependent upon domestic peace and harmony all of which meant to leave slavery be. Less than two weeks after South Carolina seceded, mercantile interests met at the Philadelphia Board of Trade and created a petition for the state legislature to repeal all laws that might be deemed unfriendly to our southern brethren. The next day, 150 business leaders met there again to discuss plans to get the South back into the Union. In a broader effort, a mass meeting at National Hall on January 16 produced a resolution begging the South not to leave and proving their own brotherly loyalty by denouncing abolitionists as outlaws. The mission that never happened. 
From its earliest days, the Atlantic slave trade consisted of an unholy traffic in souls covered by the thinnest veneer of Christian sanctity. Witnessing its earliest inception with the Portuguese traders, moved chronicler Gomes Inez de Azorara to weep in pity for their sufferings, yet rationalized the experience with piety as he prayed to God. Thy joy was solely from that one holy purpose of thine, to seek salvations for the lost souls of the heathen. He continued, In the light of this it seemed to thee, when thou sawest those captives brought into thy presence, that the expanse and trouble thou hast undergone was nothing. Such was thy pleasure in beholding them. And yet the greater benefit was theirs. For though their bodies were now brought into some subjection, that was a small matter in comparison of their souls, which would now possess true freedom forevermore. Azarara understood the suffering in detail, including the tearing apart of families and marriages from the very beginning, but what heart could be so hard as to not be pierced with piteous feelings to see that company? For some kept their heads low and their faces bathed in tears, looking upon one another. Others stood groaning very dolorously, looking up to the light of heaven, fixing their eyes upon it, crying out loudly as if asking help, of the father of nature, others struck their faces with the palms of their hands, throwing themselves at full length upon the ground. Others made their lamentations in the manner of a dirge, after the custom of their country. And though we could not understand the words of their language, the sound of it right well accorded with the measure of their sadness, but to increase their sufferings, those who had charge of the division of the captives began to separate one from another in order to make an equal partition of the fifths. And then was it needful to part fathers from sons, husbands from wives, brothers from brothers. No respect was shown either to friends or relations, but each fell where his lot took him. Yet Azarara went on to note how the slave masters successfully integrated these Africans into a new society, and thus their lot was now quite contrary to what it would have been, since they before had lived in perdition of soul and body, of their souls, in that they were yet pagan, without the clearness and the light of the holy faith, and of their bodies in which they lived like beasts, without any custom of reasonable beings. Granted, some of them were so made that they were not able to endure it and died, but that seemed less of a concern, for they died now as Christians. These statements do not only represent the musings of a piously naive court historian. Virtually every Christian writer throughout the slave eras and even some still today speak in similar strains. Azarara's rationalization 
stated in the mid-15th century, was to be repeated for over four centuries by successive generations of Christian apologists for slavery. Late Victorian writer James Frade virtually absolved his empire's inception in that trade by arguing that even the Catholic missionaries had begun the trade as an act of mercy to the Africans, whose kings would have likely sacrificed their people to idols anyway. These men and the British seamen who joined them are not to be charged with infamous inhumanity if they propose to buy these poor creatures from their captives, save them from mumbo-jumbo, and carry them to countries where they would be valuable property and be at least as well cared for as mules and horses. After all, our own Bishop Butler could give no decided opinion against Negro slavery as it existed in his time, and thus it had the sanction of the church, and no objection had been raised to it anywhere on the score of morality. Yet Frode also acknowledged that most ardent individuals driving the earliest British trade did so mainly, if not solely, for profit. The now infamous Sir Thomas Hawkins, with his unfortunately named ship Jesus of Lubeck, had no thought of saving black men's souls. He saw it only as an opportunity of extending his business as he conducted the first voyages of the British slave trade. He then proposed his business to the crown precisely on these terms. The story goes that when Elizabeth I first heard of Hawkins' deed, her Christian principles held some sway. It was detestable and would call down vengeance from heaven upon the undertakers. But it did not take much to change her mind. When Hawkins came to see her and showed her his profit sheet, not only did she forgive him, but she became a shareholder in his second slaving voyage. Whether her initial protest was for plausible deniability or not matters less than the fact that profit was the dominant concern and the crown financed and encouraged it. Prophets and Protestants had just as direct a hand in American slavery from its very inception as well. Those very first 20 blacks delivered to Jamestown in 1619 were the fruit of nothing less than a crusade on the sea led by Calvinist minister John Colin Jope on his ship, the White Lion, partnered with another, the Treasurer, on orders of Robert Rich, 2nd Earl of Warwick, via John Rolfe himself. The two ships lurked at the Caribbean for Spanish gold ships to privateer. The fact, however, that Treasurer's commission had expired, along with an intervening peace treaty, meant the duo were actually engaging in good old-fashioned piracy. When they finally cornered a Spanish forgot off the coast of Mexico, their hopes deflated somewhat when, besides gold, they found a cargo of Africans. Not to leave completely empty-handed, they loaded as many as they could on their small Corsairs, about 30 each, and left the rest. 
Jope's White Lion landed in Jamestown first and disembarked its fateful cargo. Not only had this story simply involved a Calvinist pastor, but it developed as a direct outworking of a clash of empires built on Protestant theology, particularly the eschatology of historicism. Men such as Jope and Lord Rich, perhaps Rolf as well, saw themselves as engaged in the climactic war between Satan and the saints foretold in Revelation and the book of Daniel, and considered the establishment of Jamestown not merely as a commercial venture, but as the opening of a new front that would contribute to the ultimate defeat of the popish Antichrist and his chief minion in Madrid by serving as a base for preying on the Spanish main. With this very apocalyptic vision in mind, they launched their raids on Spanish cargo ships, as so often happens, however, those fighting a monster turned into a monster in the process, a problem only exacerbated when one is allegedly fighting Antichrist. Many earnest Protestants would otherwise have been at pains to distinguish themselves from the mother of harlots in her specialty of trafficking in slaves and the souls of men, Revelation 18.13. Yet in fighting the great contest against her, these men licensed themselves to plunder the bounty of Portugal and Spain, counted in Africans, and instead of despising her sins, rather envied and partook of them instead, counting it gain for the kingdom of God, ignoring the book's very warning, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, that ye receive not of her plagues. Revelation 18.4 Gain thus remained the dominant concern. The dominant concern, however, did not make up an equal measure of the public justification. Instead, virtually every western force that engaged in the trade did so with missionary intentions on their lips. Yet as soon as colonial slave owners feared that conversion could lead to emancipation and thus end of their free labor source, they simply neglected to evangelize their slaves or instruct them in Christianity in general. This led to the acts declaring that baptism does not change the status of slaves designed to ameliorate the planter's fears, beginning in 1664 and continuing until at least six colonies passed such acts by 1706. Even then, however, the authorities had to punctuate their efforts with further encouragements, such as Charles II's in 1660 to baptize and teach the slaves Christianity. But the doubts persisted, and many colonial slaveholders continued to resist the baptism of their bondsmen because they feared their slaves would become saucy. Apparently convinced that Christianity had a dangerously liberating effect, many slaveholders believe that a slave is ten times worse than a Christian than in his state of paganism. The American Mission That Never Happened Not only did the king himself have to goad planters in 1660, Routine complaints reveal the failure to evangelize or educate slaves throughout the slave errors in America, despite the efforts of a few faithful ministers. 
1682, Reverend John Barbot, a traveling Huguenot missionary, charged that Christians in America, especially the Protestants, take very little care to have their slaves instructed. Owners only cared whether their slaves can multiply and work hard for the benefit of their masters. Morgan Godwin, an English minister in Virginia, preached a sermon in 1685 entitled, Trade Preferred Before Religion and Christ Made to Give Place to Mammon. Cotton Mather, hardly blameless on the issues of slavery and race himself, in 1702, criticized slaveholders who deride, neglect, and oppose all due means of bringing their poor Negroes unto our Lord. A few years later, he reported the view of his own contemporary missionary, John Eliot, that the English used their Negroes but as horses or their oxen, and that so little care was taken about their immortal souls. Despite Eliot's proposal to educate them himself, the masters prevented and hindered their instruction. South Carolina missionary Francis Lejau reported that masters there can't be persuaded that Negroes and Indians are otherwise than beasts and use them as such. In 1705, the Athenian oracle explained the value the planters placed on the slave's soul. The body of one of them may be worth 20 pounds. The souls of a hundred of them would not yield him one farthing. This sentiment held true into the 1850s when journalist Frederick Olmsted recorded Mississippi locals as saying there was no difference in the market value of sinners and saints. Another traveler, Peter Calm, in 1748-1750 journaled that the English colonies take little care of their spiritual welfare and let them live on in their pagan darkness. Some, he said, would in fact be very ill-pleased at and would by all means hinder their Negroes from being instructed in the doctrines of Christianity. In 1823, the Archbishop of New Orleans confessed that not only did masters in South Louisiana not train or commune their slaves, they are often not even permitted to go to church. In 1829, some masters in South Carolina essentially confessed their own dereliction by petitioning the Methodist Conference for Special Preachers to the Slaves. One insider revealed in 1864 that masters commonly believed fiddling and dancing made the largest crops of cotton and nigger religion led to the secret combinations and dangerous insurrections. The failure to evangelize the slaves in general was consistent throughout time and space. Planters routinely expressed fears that Christianity would inspire thoughts of freedom and equality among slaves. Calm's travel journals stated that the masters prevented evangelization and catechism partly by thinking that they should not be able to keep their Negroes so meanly afterwards, and partly through fear of the Negroes growing too proud and seeing themselves upon a level with their masters in religious matters. 
The clergy did little to nothing that would challenge the planter class aside from mild rebukes. Bishop Thomas Secker preached before the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel, SPG, in 1740, chiding slave owners for preventing slave conversions, because after that no pretense will remain for not treating them like men. Nevertheless, Secker, in the same sermon, assured his audience that God backed the royal and colonial law for permanent slavery for blacks even after baptism. The scripture, far from making any alteration in civil rights, expressly directs that every man abide in the condition wherein he is called with great indifference of mind concerning outward circumstances, he said. Not only did the SPG do virtually nothing to challenge slave owners, and not only did it virtually wink at their practices, but it was a slave owner for most of its existence. The society, technically a royal corporation, inherited plantations with slaves in 1710 and managed them as an absentee owner. Not only did it not consider manumitting its slaves, but it followed the standard Barbadian practice of branding slaves. How is that for Christian witness against a system that its own clergy members themselves acknowledged as evil? Which message spoke with more authority? The SBG's sermons or its slaves walking around Barbados with SPG branded on their chests? Because the society continued both until the British Empire's Emancipation Law in 1833, at which point the society still treated its slaves like property. It cashed compensation checks totaling 8,823 pounds, almost 1 million today. While clergy upheld the planter class, and the planter class supported the system for profit, the more general populace concurred out of simple racism, which infected even their religious sentiment. LaJau shared how his North Carolina neighbors expressed this prejudice. One lady asked, Is it possible that any of my slaves could go to heaven and I must see them there? A young man had likewise stated openly that he is resolved never to come to the holy table while slaves are received there. The fundamental sin remained in the very prayers of southern slave owners. It would be better if there wasn't any niggers in the world, one said, to the virtual echo of another. Lord, send that there was no negro in all America. Even consciousness of this sin, however, did not always deter the offenders. Money and power had an ameliorating effect for some, as Alabama slaveholder Henry Watson Jr. confessed. If we do commit a sin owning slaves, it is certainly one which is attended with great conveniences. Mississippi plantation daughter Mary McGee, whose father, John Burris, had been a Methodist minister, pulled back the curtain. 
Fond, benevolent feelings, tender regard for the good of souls, evils of slavery, are all less than dust of the balance when weighed against the charms of some wealthy Harris, professor of slaves, and the hope of winning her and enjoying the ease of the paternal mansion banishes all thought of abolition or benevolence. A limited gospel for slaves. The money usually set the cultural tone in regard to slavery, and the church simply played along in most cases. The establishment always exerted control over the clergy, and thus over evangelism of the slaves. This reality only served to ensure that the protection of the institution remained the dominant concern, and thus any effort to evangelize blacks only reflected that agenda. With so much at stake, elites themselves got involved in setting the agenda. No less than Charles Coatsworth Pinckney entered the discussion to express the need to maintain white control over preaching and its content in a speech to the South Carolina Agricultural Society in 1829. He said, We look upon the habit of black preaching as a widespreading evil, not because a black man cannot be a good one, but because they acquire an influence independent of the owner and not subject to his control. For this reason, Pinckney argued, while blacks should receive religious instruction, it should only be administered by white and southern missionaries and only orally. This latter criteria, of course, reinforced the belief and practice that blacks should not be allowed to read and write. This left them subject not only to white oversight in general, but to a highly selective version of the Christian faith authorities chose to impose upon them. Hypocrisy abounded in Pinckney's address, and in some places obviously so. Immediately after expressing his fear of blacks acquiring any sense of independence from their owner's control, he elucidated that when they have possessed this power, they have been known to make improper use of it. Earlier in the same address, however, he had ostensibly dismissed the argument of those who opposed evangelizing the poor white masses because the aspirations of liberty were sometimes abused for the purposes of insurrection. No, said Pinckney, you do not suppress religious instruction merely because a few may abuse it. After all, no arguments are entitled to so little weight as those which condemn the use of any practice because it has been abused. He apparently did not realize his own use of such an argument against blacks only a few pages later. Men such as Pinckney often gave verbal precedent to the salvation of the soul as a reason for evangelizing blacks, but hypocrisy donned the face of this argument as well. On the one hand, emphasis on the infinite comparable value of the spiritual was craftily used to justify the deprival of physical and civil liberties to blacks. On the other hand, once they invoked the power of regeneration, 
The justifiers could not then remain silent on the physical and tangible benefits they otherwise all agreed followed from faith. Some found a way to preserve the institution of slavery untarnished while yet admitting the life-changing power of Christian faith. Its real usefulness, Pinckney divulged, lay in rendering better, harder-working slaves. Were true religion propagated among this numerous class, a sense of duty would counteract their reluctance to labor and diminishing the cases of feigned sickness so harassing to the planter would augment their numerical force and consequent production. The main goal such a planter could eye for giving the slaves true religion, then, was not the slave's benefit, but to render them more contented with their situation and more anxious to promote their owner's welfare. Pinckney also let slip another of his true reasons for advancing the cause of evangelizing the slaves. It would help the South's facade in light of abolitionist criticism. Such a state of moral culture would give us the advantage in argument over those of our northern brethren, whose objection to our system is partly founded on the deficiency of religious instruction. Were this more generally diffused, our national character would be relieved of its only real opprobrium. Even aside from the delusion that the lack of religious instruction constituted the only real opprobrium, properly cast upon the peculiar institution, Pinckney thus continued to reveal his motivations. The capstone of oblivion for this address came in its final notes and also stands as representative of the entire culture of anti-black racism north and south. Virtually the entirety of America united in the belief that blacks were an inferior race, not only degraded and uncivilized, but incapable of becoming civilized. This argument lay at the bedrock of subjugation from the earliest Portuguese enslavements through all the southern justifications of continued slavery right up to the highest political proclamations of Abraham Lincoln himself and even many of the Quakers and abolitionists. Yet here, from his own mouth, giving lip service to the need for evangelizing slaves, Pinckney undercut the whole charade with the power of the gospel. He delivers the following anecdote from unquestionable sources. The people of slaves of an absentee's plantation were proverbially bad from the abuse and mismanagement of an overseer. The proprietor resided in England and attorneys in Carolina. The latter dismissed the overseer as soon as his misconduct was discovered and employed another who was a pious man. He did not only instruct the Negroes himself to the best of his abilities, but accompanied them every Sunday to a Methodist church in the neighborhood. At the end of five years, their character was completely changed and so has continued ever since. After nearly 15 years or more, 
the surviving attorney is now in treaty for the purchase of these very Negroes, whom he formally considered a band of outlaws. There is hardly a doubt that Pinckney remained consistent in mind here, truly envisioning only the docility with which these slaves performed their work once Christianized. But granting the truth of the story also exposes the lie that blacks could not be civilized. If a group of any persons, no matter how formally savage, degraded, backward, or brutal, underwent transformation from proverbially bad and a perceived band of outlaws, to completely changed, then we have proof positive that people indeed becoming civilized and thus fit for liberty. Moreover, that the gospel and God's word could affect such a transformation in only a few years stands as a lasting condemnation of the continual demands for maintaining the institution of American slavery for over 200 years. It is clear from this alone and from the mouth of one of the greatest champions of the system, that the capacity for civilization was not the issue. Worst of all, such an anecdote coming from such a mouth as one of the ubiquitous picnies proves the southern elite themselves knew better. We have further reasons to believe that the slave owners themselves feared the real power of Christianity in relation to the slaves and the institution. Despite the laws concerning baptisms and conversions not changing the status of slaves having existed on the books for well over a century in all cases, well into the decades of the antebellum era, many masters remained fearful of the implications of slave conversion. This can only mean that it was not the forms of Christianity that challenged the system, but the substance of its message. Even after the mainstream denominations all maintained missions to the slaves, men like Charles Colcock Jones hamstrung any real effort in the name of leading the advance of it. Jones, a former anti-slavery activist and Presbyterian clergyman who had become a wealthy planter, advocated for the education of slaves in that peculiar way that co-ops the program and regulates, sanitizes, whitewashes it for the purpose of a ruling elite. In the religious instruction of Negroes in the United States, Jones repeatedly assured slaveholders that, far from inspiring resistance, Christianity could be used to inculcate docility among slaves. This program drew clearly from a dualistic spirituality of the church, ethic promoted in the churches to separate the spiritual and temporal statuses of the slave. In preaching to the slaves, we separate entirely their religious and their civil condition, Jones wrote in 1842, and contend that one may be attended without interfering with the other. With this method in place, the only way slaveholders could justify preaching doctrine to their bondsmen was by ignoring their status as slaves. With this ruse, Jones could see the institution altogether as a great and effective mission to the Africans, all in God's providence. What mattered more, after all, than saving these many souls? Jones, in an 1862 address printed in a report in the Central Presbyterian, 
argued, therefore, that blacks should indeed be educated in the Christian religion. Why were they brought here after all? He answered, to be our servants, our support, and source of wealth and comfort? Yes, indeed, but this cloud had a greater gospel lining. Beyond these worthy purposes, there was a purpose of advancing the civilization and salvation of the Negroes through the gospel of his son. To maintain a truncated Christianity required a truncated message as well. Thus, aids such as Jones's 1837 Catechism of Scripture, Doctrine and Practice, designed specially for oral instruction of colored persons, carefully selected which scriptures to teach and which not. The book was wildly popular, running into at least six editions in its first year alone. Some whites openly admitted they truncated biblical instruction to slaves as a means of social control. They didn't want slaves to have a deeper grasp of the truths of scripture. White Marsh Seabrook, later governor of South Carolina, in 1834 addressed the question whether slaves should be acquainted with the whole Bible and every doctrine which that holy book inculcates, and thus have religious knowledge coextensive with that of their owners. He responded unhesitatingly, no, for the enforcement of such a project would entitle its friends to a room in the lunatic asylum. Seabrook then immediately addressed a report from a committee by the Presbyterian Synod of South Carolina in Georgia, December 5th through 9th, 1833. The committee had supported the religious instruction of blacks, as so many were moved to do at that time in reaction to abolitionist pressures, yet also had to assure masters that such religious instruction would not stoke desires for emancipation. Seabrook rejected the minister's proposition to preach the gospel to blacks, calling it an unfortunate declaration. Just consider, he argued, what would happen if blacks gained knowledge of certain passages? He said, The impropriety of the following quotations and comments will readily be perceived. God hath made of one blood all the nations of men, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The Negroes are our neighbors, for they are men, members of the same great family. If they are not our neighbors, whom we are bound to love as ourselves, we have no neighbors at all. All things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. God is no respecter of persons. The sentences quoted contain the foundation argument on which the emancipationist proposes to erect the superstructure of his schemes. A struggle of interest, therefore, existed between ministers who had to admit their duty to preach the gospel to every creature and slave owners who feared biblical knowledge would lead to thoughts and desires of freedom, not to mention laid the intellectual foundations for it. The compromise came in the form of sermons and catechetical instruction selectively edited to exclude any such truths as may inspire anything in a slave other than compliance with his status and master's commands. 
One former slave summarized the typical master's sermon sarcastically. Serve your masters. Don't steal your master's turkey. Don't steal your master's chickens. Don't steal your master's hogs. Don't steal your master's meat. Do whatsoever your master tell you to do. Same old thing all the time. The worst slaveholders. Not only did missions to the slaves not really happen, but slave testimony consistently pegs profession Christian masters as among the worst. The fact is doubly shocking in light of all the sermons preached on the master's Christian's duties to the slaves, preached mainly to counteract abolitionist attacks. They seem to have little effect on either the attacks or the master's behavior. One former slave told a federal commission in 1863 how Christian slaveholders were the hardest masters. The Christians will oppress you more. For instance, the biggest dinner must be got on Sunday. Now everybody that has got common sense knows Sunday is a day of rest. And if you do the least thing in the world that they don't like, they will mark it down against you. And Monday, you've got to take a whipping. Now the card player and the horse racer won't be there to trouble you. They'll eat their breakfast in the morning and feed their dogs and then be off. And you won't see them again until night. I'd rather be with a card player or a sportsman by half than a Christian. Another told the same commission. I believe the people that were not religious treated their slaves better than those who were religious. A religious man will believe whatever the overseer says, and he has control of the hands in the field. Whatever he says is law and gospel. If he says John has acted impotent, the master will come round and say, chastise him for it, and the overseer will give him two or three hundred lashes. Then, in the next place, they don't feed or clothe their slaves as well as the irreligious man. There was one Mr. Anderson, a preacher who married a girl who had slaves, and after that he quit preaching pretty much and drove his slaves very hard. He couldn't see anything but cotton bales. If pork was selling at a high price, all the slaves would get from the religious man would be three pounds a week while the man that couldn't be so religious would give him four pounds. Former slave accounts contain many such tales of Christian slaveholders, including clergymen, mistreating their slaves worse than many pagans would have. One former Virginian slave, Susan Boggs, said that the man who baptized me had a colored woman tied up in his yard to whip when he got home. That very Sunday, and her mother belonged to the same church. She added, I didn't see any difference between the slaveholders who had religion and those who had not. Texan Carrie Davenport explained how his religious master was, was religious every Sunday morning. Everybody had to get ready and go for prayer. I never could understand his religion. Because sometimes he got up off of his knees and before we even got to the house, he'd cuss us out. An interview with the former South Carolina slave resulted in the following report in 1863. I find the testimony universal 
that the masters were mean. All were not cruel, but all were hard taskmasters, so their former subjects say. When questioned about one master nicknamed Good Mr. Fripps, they said he bad to his people same as any of them. They only called him good in satire. Call him good because he good Methodist man. He would sing and pray aloud on Sundays. Another slave expressed the oblivion with which Christians engaged in hypocrisy. We couldn't tell no preacher never how we suffer all these long years. He'd know nothing about we. While slave owners worked vigorously to allow slaves only so much biblical teaching as to make them good, docile, submissive slaves, even the most basic moral elements of Christian truth proved revolutionary. This phenomenon arises clearly with the commandment against theft. Reading the pro-slavery defenses from the antebellum era, one encounters consistent references to slaves stealing and pilfering from their master's stores and livestock. This always held up as evidence of their incapacity for civilization. Yet it was hardly any lack of capacity. It was resistance and restitution in their keen understanding of their master's hypocrisy. While white preachers repeatedly urged, don't steal, slaves just as persistently denied that this commandment applied to them, since they themselves were stolen property. Former slave Josephine Howard retorted to those slaveholders who preached against theft. Then why did these white folks steal my mammy and her mammy? That they sinfulness stealing they is. A Virginian slave preached back at his master, You white folks set the bad example of stealing. You stole us from Africa, and not content with that. If any got free here, you stole them afterward. And so we were made slaves. Former Georgian slave George Womble agreed. Slaves were taught to steal by their masters. Not only had masters brought them as stolen to begin with, but masters would sometimes send the slaves to steal from neighbors on the master's behalf. Womble's case reveals a particularly insidious manipulation by masters, and yet another case in which laws allowed masters to perpetuate moral evils at the expense of their slaves. In most southern states, remember, slaves caught stealing could be whipped or punished severely. In some cases, the death penalty attached. Yet if a master could reconcile with a neighbor on a slave's behalf and pay a fine, etc., or a master could cover for a slave in court in a similar way. Womble describes how some masters could promise to protect the slave if the slave would go steal from the neighbors for him, and promise also not to let anyone else harm him if he were to be caught. Any slave who resisted such a command, however, could be punished by the master in various ways, indirectly or directly. So he would likely risk engaging in theft, knowing full well that if he gets caught, the master may even in fact go back on his word and allow the slave to bear full punishment. He would know up front, after all, that any master who would steal his neighbor's property is by definition a dishonest man. It is no wonder 
that whole audiences full of slaves were known to get up and leave the preaching services of missionaries when they began to preach on stealing. They simply could not stomach the hypocrisy. One former slave who had successfully escaped to Canada recalled how his old mixed Baptist church in Virginia used to preach the golden rule without even recognizing what they were doing to their own brethren in Christ. He despaired that any could be saved. Slaves saw virtually all masters as hypocrites, with few exceptions, if for nothing else than their participation in America's peculiar institution in and of itself, and they expected judgment to fall upon them. One journalist recorded from her travels in Georgia, I never saw a Negro Universalist, for they all believe in a future retribution for their masters. One former slave noted that he believed in hell because of his master. He didn't believe a just God could receive such a man into heaven. Another quip that when his master, in a particularly friendly moment, offered the slave a burial spot next to his own, the slave responded that he would rather not, just in case the devil might get to the wrong box when he came to get the master's body. While both white, northern, and southern ministers saw their respective missions as the Christianizing of America, slaves reversed the applications of the biblical types. America was Egypt. Escape from American institutions was the Exodus. The rudiments of theology were indeed enough to bring condemnation. Frederick Douglass certainly felt so. Slaves know enough of the rudiments of theology to believe that those go to hell who die slaveholders. But the simplest concepts were also able to bring utter condemnations from another perspective as well, probably best exemplified by the comments of former slave Mary Younger, a fugitive in Canada at the time. If those slaveholders were to come here, I would treat them well just to shame them by showing that I had humanity. Pro-Slavery Transformations After the American Revolution, the same transformations occurred within the southern churches as in the general culture. Waves of liberty fever produced tense discussions over freeing the slaves, but those profiting from slavery and the slave trade were not about to budge. Some in the churches at first made ovations toward ending the institution, but as soon as they realized how much they depended upon those most insistent on maintaining the system, they found ways to tailor their message. Certainly, the political climate in the wake of the American Revolution was more favorable to slaveholders who freed their bondsmen than it became in later decades. But the cotton economy expanded and ultimately prevailed, private manumissions declined, and the psychological conflicts instilled by religious principles intensified. The clergy would, in fact, become the most intense defenders of the system in many cases. Compromise and capitulation in denominations tracked with the experiences among individuals in terms of religious tolerance and rationalizations of American slavery. 
Before the revolution, many southern churches entertained a much more welcoming view towards blacks, free and slave. In fact, the church wielded spiritual weapons of warfare which produced greater progress than that deriving from Locke or even Montesquieu. In contrast to the secular principles of liberalism, evangelical egalitarianism resisted the convenient distortions of racism by actively embracing black worshipers as fundamentally equal in the sight of God. Unfortunately, things would not remain so. The Methodists had vocally opposed slavery in the 1780s and 90s and had even begun formal actions against it already in 1784. The denomination reiterated its opposition in 1796. Trouble brewed, however. Two years later, Bishop Francis Asbury, an opponent of slavery, seemingly despaired that the institution would never end, but in his lament revealed the church's entanglement with so many prominent Methodists being slaveholders. Oh, to be dependent on slaveholders is in part to be a slave, and I was freeborn. I am brought to concede that slavery will exist in Virginia perhaps for ages. There is not a sufficient sense of religion nor of liberty to destroy it. Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, in the highest flight of rapturous piety, still maintain and defend it. The denomination at large echoed the sentiments within two decades. The General Conference received a report from Committee on Slavery that showed the fissures of compromise. Under the present existing circumstances, in relation to slavery, little can be done to abolish a practice so contrary to the principles of moral justice. Repeating what would become all too classic justifications, the Methodists declared slavery a civil matter outside of the church's power and deemed emancipation impracticable and the institution in itself past remedy. Clearly, this church was washing its hands of what it knew so many of its own members and clergy were practicing. Why, for example, did the church not at least suggest a regular rule of sanctions against members involved in cases of abuse, at least. Likewise, early Baptists declared against slavery only to fall under pressure. Originally, they made few racial distinctions, welcoming black converts and generally opposing the ownership of slaves among their adherents. This spirit never fully left, even after the Baptists almost fully compromised with slavery especially before the fateful turn of sentiment and emotion in the early 1830s, a few churches actually disciplined slaveholders for abuses. Notably, the Hepzibah Baptist Church in southeastern Louisiana in 1820 rejected a man's application for membership for whipping a black brother of the church, and on another excommunicated a member for abusing his slaves. In most cases, however, it would take more than a whipping in and of itself to provoke such a censure. Baptists in Fredericksburg, Virginia, in 1846, investigated a member for alleged ill-treatment of a female slave. The infraction was not that he had whipped her, but that he had done so indiscreetly.
indiscretion after all, is the very type of offense which risks publicity and rumor. It could cause a local member's association's unnecessary embarrassment. Similarly, in 1850, the Dover Baptist Association finally resolved to use every proper means to effect a change in the laws prohibiting teaching slaves to read the Bible. The association had only existed, Bible in hand, since 1783. Despite the few holdouts, Baptists compromised quickly and thoroughly after the Revolution. In 1790, the General Committee in Virginia condemned the institution as a violent deprivation of the rights of nature and went so far as to recommend every legal measure to extirpate the horrid evil from the land. But things had already begun to change among membership. The resolution roiled some church members so much that the stir led the same general committee three years later to declare slavery a civil issue outside of the church's purview. By the end of the 18th century, slavery was firmly established among Virginia Baptists. Devout Christians eventually not only tolerated or defended slavery, but also owned slaves at high rates. By 1844, Methodists owned around 200,000. Methodist clergy themselves held an additional 11,600. Based on the few sources available, Baptists held around 115,000 slaves in 1837, and three-fourths of the Presbyterian population owned slaves by 1849. Episcopal, Congregational, and other churches were just as heavily involved, if not more so. The change in tone by Baptists and Methodists in particular is actually quite traceable. Before the Revolutionary War, Baptists and Methodists operated as fringe elements in the shadow of the established Anglican Church. They did not mind the doctrinal consistency befitting religious radicals, for they were by law pushed to the fringes already. They opposed slavery, preached the created equality of all men, welcomed and received blacks, ordained them as preachers even, and fiercely denounced all who dared contradict scriptural truth, especially Anglican clergymen and their protectors in the establishment. In this setting, Baptists, for example, were countercultural. Their movement posed not simply a religious challenge, though it was that in a profound way, but a wider social and cultural challenge, nothing less than a repudiation of the entire world of the planter elite, of which an easygoing Anglicanism was only one feature. The revolution, however, resulted in the disestablishment of the Anglican Church in key southern states. After the war, Anglican clergymen fled and evangelicals had free reign legally across the states. It seemed like a heavenly gift, a wide-open mission field, void of the most prominent opponents to date. Yet even after a few decades of the new normal, Baptists, Methodists, and Presbyterians combined had only added a few percent of the population to their roles. It was a dismal failure, and a time for self-evaluation and change. The only change they could muster, however, 
was the one they already made with the onset of religious toleration and a free market, so to speak, on potential members. Evangelical clergy ceased their fiery denunciations of civil officials, especially an assiduously cultivated goodwill among the ruling gentry by affirming their support for the established hierarchy. While they still retained a legalistic stance against drinking, dancing, and ostentation, they nevertheless relaxed their approach in an effort to do what modern seeker-sensitive churches do, fill the pews, especially with wealthy members. His program, however, as it usually does, proved a slippery slope. Once the church began to ameliorate its message in order to win converts, who knows where it will stop? In various areas, evangelical doctrine conflicted with southern mores, which had been derived more from classical elitism and profit motives than Christian doctrine. The evangelical churches preached family values, but to the planter elite, family values meant a stringent patriarchal domination and slave ownership. If a member of a southern household converted to evangelical faith, they would often from that point view their own family as unregenerate, not born again. They may go so far as to break fellowship in various ways or even expose domestic troubles, maltreatment of slaves, sexual affairs, illegitimate children, in service to their newly enlightened conscience. Southern institutions could hardly stand for this. Likewise, the slavery issue was just as big. An evangelical convert or minister who freed his own slaves or demanded emancipation was nothing but looming trouble for the Southern system. It is not without surprise that the slavery issue was the front line of compromise in this setting. The cracks in the fortifications appeared already in the 1780s for Baptists, when it was clear that despite sporadic preaching against slavery, no decisive steps were taken to bar slaveholders from membership. Methodists followed the same path. In 1784, the newly constituted Methodist Episcopal Church capped more than a decade of fiery anti-slavery preaching in America by passing a rigorous set of rules to purge its membership of slaveholders. However well-intentioned, the assembly soon saw its utter powerlessness. Within a matter of months, a whirlwind of opposition stirred up mainly by the Southern laity swept away all of the new restrictions except for one forbidding members to engage in buying or selling slaves with the intention of keeping them in bondage. Even this minor provision was scrubbed from the southern printings of the rules by 1804. The drive to fill the churches with new members, therefore, included the desire to court support from the wealthier slave-owning class, and this weakened the church's witness on both fronts by doing precisely what it set out to accomplish, filling the church roles with slaveholders in both number and prestige. For any church seeking growth and influence, to return to the earlier radical, no-compromise message at this point would have been suicide. It was inevitable, however, that the church's message would suffer. Evangelicals began the effort to bring their version of family values into accord with white southern mores by retreating from their opposition to slavery. This program did not take long to effect in full either. In the two decades after the revolution, 
Most Baptist and Methodist clergymen deferred to white concerns about their future heirs first by muting and finally abandoning appeals for manumission. By 1800, only a few white Southern preachers, mainly those settled in the Ohio Valley, spoke out for liberty of African Americans and the integrity of black families. Thus, in such short order, by the lust for respectability and numbers in the pews, was completed the radical transformation of anti-slavery evangelicalism into the very face of pro-slavery Christianity in the South. Presbyterians were deeply divided from early on. A fissure between North and South had already formed a strong ideological divide which would never heal, and the eventual result was the same as Methodist and Baptist. In the afterglow of the Revolution, some anti-slavery sentiment ascended to leadership. Reverend David Rice preached a widely read sermon in 1792, Slavery Inconsistent with Justice and Good Policy in which he denounced the institution in prophetic terms. The slavery of the Negroes began in inequity. A curse has attended it, and a curse will follow it. National vices will be punished with national calamities. Let us avoid these vices, that we may avoid the punishment which they deserve. Pushback to such absolute anti-slavery views came immediately and in many forms, Transylvania Presbytery in 1796 wielded the separation of powers argument. Admitting slavery was a great evil, they claimed it nevertheless lay outside of the church's spiritual mission and saw the final remedy as belonging to the civil power. Since the Bible had allowed slaveholders like Philemon as members, American Presbyterian committees did not think that they had enough authority from the word of God to make it a term of church communion. Without express condemnation of slaveholding in the Bible, therefore they apparently deemed it best to allow American slavery in its entirety to continue unimpeded with virtually no admonition beyond strong lip service. In 1800, the best that the Synod of Virginia could offer was a vision of possible freedom someday, and thus masters should prepare for this based upon their own estimation of their slaves' preparedness for it. We consider it the indispensable duty of all who hold slaves to prepare by a suitable education the young among them for a state of freedom and to liberate them as soon as they shall appear to be duly qualified for that high privilege. If any refused to do even this much, the Synod essentially sanctioned inaction by announcing it would still not be enough to refuse Christian communion with them. So much for indispensable and duty. Slave owners obliged the lack of sanctions and almost universally neglected to prepare their slaves for freedom. Prominent minister and president of Union Theological Seminary, Dr. John Holt Rice, a member of that Virginia Synod, claimed repeatedly that slaves could someday be emancipated. He was nevertheless still arguing against immediate emancipation 23 years after his synod's resolution on the ground that the slaves were simply unprepared for it. It is most obvious that immediate emancipation would be madness. 
it would be turning loose on society 1,500,000 lawless, ignorant, and depraved beings who had never been accustomed to reflection or self-government. The preparation for freedom had rarely, if ever, happened, yet no church discipline followed in virtually any such case. Anti-slavery forces, with firmly entrenched and powerful intellectual leadership in the North, continued pressing within the Presbyterian system. The General Assembly could still, therefore, denounce slavery as late as 1818. We consider the voluntary enslaving of one part of the human race by another as a gross violation of the most precious and sacred rights of human nature, as utterly inconsistent with the law of God, and as totally irreconcilable with the spirit and principles of the gospel of Christ. It is manifestly the duty of all Christians who enjoy the light of the present day to use their honest, earnest, and unwearied endeavors as speedily as possible to efface this blot on our holy religion and to obtain the complete abolition of slavery throughout Christendom and, if possible, throughout the world. The strong language, however, seems to have been the apex of Presbyterian anti-slavery, for the church did little to nothing against it afterwards. Moreover, this statement was the work of a dedicated minority of the most abolitionist-minded Presbyterians fighting not only the overt pro-slavery of the Southern contingent, but the latent and apathetic versions of the moderate emancipationists, gradualists, and colonization society establishment as well. The motion passed near the end of the session when many members had already left and those that remained just wanted to go home. One historian was of the following opinion. The act was not, in fact, a strong implementation of anti-slavery conviction. It was quite the opposite, a very weak and feeble instrument. The Southern members were not so stupid as not to see this. They saw that, apart from the quotation of its phrases, it could not be used at all by the anti-slavery group. By the time the abolitionists within the denomination could get memorials to the floor in 1835, the issue had so polarized the church that the committee reports showed thorough compromise. The only way to preserve a semblance of evangelical esteem for the inspiration of scripture was either to embrace wholeheartedly the slave-holding apologetic from scripture or to create a theology that separated the institution from the church's concern. These evangelicals would eventually do both, as we will see in the next chapter. Following the standard out... The 1836 General Assembly pronounced the issue only a matter of state which the church should not take any further order. The clergy found other reasons for an action as well. In some cases, they claimed to withhold talk of emancipation by citing a fear of reaction from the population or the slave power. Dr. Rice wrote to Archibald Alexander, claiming that the church was slowly working its way into gaining enough influence in Virginia, but it was still a long way off. Because taking the members generally, three-fourths are women and minors, persons not acknowledged in law, 
what could they do? Of the remaining fourth, three out of four are people in moderate circumstances without political influence. In this state of things, any direct movement of the church on the subject would, it seems to me, inevitably do more harm rather than good. Any open opposition from the church at this juncture would create a backlash that Rice feared had already begun due to the influence of abolitionists, particularly in the Synod of Ohio. I am confident that already material injury has been done in the way of impeding the progress of feeling in this country against slavery. There is a march of opinion on the subject which would, if interrupted, at no distant date, annihilate this evil in Virginia. I have no doubt of it. And every step gained by true religion is a step toward the accomplishment of this object. But as soon as the ministers of religion take hold of it, the old jealousy is revived and people determine that the clergy shall not interfere in their secular interests and their rights of property. The old jealousy feared by Men like Rice erupted after the great turning point of 1831 in the form of fierce backlash and resentment across the South, including intense suspicion of ministers who even sniffed of dreaded abolitionism. Northern abolitionist forces within the recently formed American Anti-Slavery Society began flooding the South with literature designed to sway and recruit leaders especially ministers, to preach the cause. The witch hunt swept up among the missionary efforts among the slaves and even the various reform societies and efforts that had evolved as part of the benevolence movement. All were regarded as potential agencies of abolitionist infiltration and incitement of slaves. An investigative grand jury in Cass County, Georgia, for example, recommended all such societies be closely watched, since the county's namesake, General Lewis Cass, was suspected of anti-slavery sentiments. The population voted to rename the county Bartow, commemorate Georgia politician and Confederate Colonel Francis Bartow who was killed in the First Battle of Manassas. Likewise, an anti-abolition meeting in Clinton, Mississippi, demanded their clergy start preaching the goodness and blessings of slavery for both master and slave, and that silence on the issue at this crisis will be, in our opinion, subject to serious censure. While many pro-slavery advocates would use the reaction of the 1830s as an excuse to intimidate ministers, and ministers like Rice used it to justify the church's silence and its inaction, it does not explain why the southern churches pressured their anti-slavery ministers strongly as early as the 1820s or earlier. Several such ministers either saw the need to leave, David Barrow, Peter Cartwright, William Williamson, James Hodge, capitulate, Edward Dromgoul, Lewis Myers, or suffered discipline by the churches and or were run out of the state, James Gilliland and George Bourne. Long before the assemblies had to contend with the rise of radical abolitionism or any public reaction to it. Certainly, after the early 1830s, however, 
Talk of abolition of slavery was generally forbidden, and only mere amelioration was acceptable. Some ministers did begin, after unprecedented numbers of sermons, essays, and instructional material on slave education and the duties of masters from northern churches and abolitionists flooded the South, preaching sermons addressing general reforms to the system. Yet, while often denouncing abuses within slavery as an abstract category, they still attempted little to nothing to end them, not even so much as to detail abuses publicly in sermons or tracts. Sermons abound of the legitimacy of slaveholding, and nearly all deign to acknowledge some abuses within the system, but sermons on specific issues such as tearing apart of slave families, the rape of enslaved women, the deprivation of rights and protections for life and limb of slaves, and more, were virtually impossible to find, even if they are sometimes mentioned. Left with vague platitudes, offending slave owners had little even to impinge their conscience, let alone challenge them or serve any real possibility of discipline. Even the precious few appeals to change civil laws to increase protections of slaves in some regards, when left vague, signaled to an entrenched system that the clergy remained no threat to slavery and its abuses a situation that profited masters and clergy alike. While the church confirmed that it did have a duty and authority where the Bible spoke to the relationship between masters and slaves, it hardly ever, after 1830, moved beyond generalities in sermons and articles. The church even insisted that the master-slave relationship was a proper subject for church discipline. Church discipline, however, was not only not generally administered on matters relating to slavery, but even in the areas the clergy would most universally agree were wicked, such as the forced separation of slave marriages. What little information is available suggests that few cases involving slavery came before judicatories. That is, few cases were ever even recognized by the church courts. When one James Davis wrote a letter to the Christian Index asking whether slave owners who separated married slaves should be disciplined, he was confronted with the full force of the emphasis on the exclusive spirituality of the church. It is clear that the scripture recognizes the relation of master and servant and commands servants to obey their masters not only the good and the gentle, but also the forward. Here, the primary obligation must rest unless the servant can alienate the rights of his master to command by a voluntary engagement of his own. But who will venture to affirm this? So then it follows that when the absolute commands of his master come in contact with the incidental promises of the servant, the latter must yield to the former. The author does not seem to have realized the logical implications of this statement. It would ultimately mean that a master may do virtually anything not forbidden by secular laws, even if it caused the slave to sin or violated a sacred oath taken by the slave. 
This was essentially a declaration that masters could defy God's law as long as the state said so, and the church would have nothing to say about it. By 1851, even the vaguest and mildest of exhortations could be met with howls. When the highly respected Baptist Richard Fuller addressed the American Colonization Society in that year, he criticized radical abolitionism and only mildly suggested that the South should nevertheless still discuss slavery with the goal of ultimately ending the institution. He even absolved the South of any need to concede any of the various faults abolitionists regularly presented against Southern slavery. He even stated that he would not urge the obvious agreed-upon faults, such as breaking up families. I will not assist on these points, he said. The only concession I now urge is one which I made some years ago. It is that slavery is not a good thing and a thing to be perpetuated. You would think that by walking back his criticism to such a degree, establishing such a low bar as to only admit that slavery was not generally a good thing and ought not to be perpetuated into the distant future, a prominent clergyman might even get a nod and an amen. But not so in Washington, D.C. in the South in 1851. Most evangelicals did not share Fuller's views on slavery, and his address received such hostility that he felt forced to publish a defensive reply in the Southern Baptist to emphasize his loyalty and how he was as fully as ever identified with the South. The worst kind of slavery. Churches not only changed their message to accommodate slavery, not only defended the system, and not only neglected to discipline offending members in their ranks, but the churches as churches engaged in what even contemporaries called the worst kind of slavery, institutional slaveholding. This practice, engaged in by schools, colleges, businesses, and even churches as well, involved the holding of slaves by the corporate entity as an investment. The slaves, in some cases, would serve the institution in various capacities, but would also be leased out yearly to plantations purely for the income. Churches did the latter almost exclusively, using the revenue to pay their ministers and have some left over for maintenance and other expenses. In many cases, the slaves were the only endowment congregation required. This freed members from the necessity of making financial contributions to their church, a substantial benefit. Presbyterian minister William Hall spent the first part of his pastoral career at one such church that practiced institutional slavery, Briary Presbyterian Church in Prince Edward County, Virginia. Looking back upon his service there in the 1830s, he related in his autobiography how the congregation supported him by a fund which consisted of slaves who were hired out from year to year to the highest bidder, which I considered the worst kind of slavery. It was truly among the worst forms because it bereaved the slaves of the last remaining vestige of care that could have derived from the self-interest of an owner. As Fanny Kimball explained in her now-famous diaries, 
The hiring out of Negroes is a horrid aggravation of the miseries of their condition. For if, on the plantations and under the masters to whom they belong, their labor is severe and their food inadequate, think what it must be when they are hired out for a stipulated sum to a temporary employer, who has not even the interest which it is pretended that an owner may feel in the welfare of his slaves, but whose chief aim it must necessarily be to get as much out of them and expend as little on them as possible. If this was the reality for rented out slaves in general, imagine the life of those whose lot was to be rented out every year to the highest bidder with little concern but to maximize profit each year. While this kind of slavery may have been worse in general, certain aspects in particular stand out. First, it separated family members on a routine basis. We know that slave sales, the domestic trade, and planter migrations all force the separation of slave families, usually permanently. Institutional slavery did this as well, usually separating children from parents or spouses from each other to different renters each year. In some cases, slaves found wives on one plantation only to be removed and never see them again. Some church records make clear that a minority in the slave-holding churches realized they were leading slaves into temptation of sexual sins in various such circumstances. The majority overruled them and maintained the practice. Second, child mortality rates skyrocketed under this system of slavery, even without the basic level of medical care slaves would normally receive from an owner, rented slaves suffered even more greatly. This was particularly true during a pregnancy, with the exception of some rice and sugar plantations, masters did not expect much work, if any, from a pregnant female slave. Seeing the baby as a return on investment, most masters would provide some maternal health care and rest to protect it. A renter, however, would not have that attachment and would furthermore expect some work to be done even by a pregnant slave he rented for the season. Further, when children were born, renters did not provide the needs and nursing of the children as they would have for slaves they owned. Yet, the mother was demanded back to the fields as early as possible. The babies were thus weaned very early or simply neglected with consequences for their nutrition and immunity. As a result, overall, pregnant mothers and young children often suffered from lack of the special care and rest they required. What samples we have of child mortality rates under such conditions reflect this reality. Whereas in a comparable time and place, the rates were around 16%, high as it was, the records available from Reverend Hill's Briary Church show that 6 out of 14 children born to their slaves, 1842 to 1846, died before age 3, a devastating 43%. Yet another aspect reveals a peculiar hypocrisy on the part of these slave-holding churches. 
than neglect to instruct their own slaves in Christianity. During a time when local Presbyterians were demanding the masters and owners provide for the instruction of their slaves in the Christian faith, Reverend Hill's church itself had very little, if any, provision for the slaves it let out to random renters yearly. Further, the church did not seem to be particular about who rented its slaves either. The highest bidder always won, but the highest bidder may have been a particularly cruel master. In the case of Briary, records indicate that some slaves ended up under one of the cruelest men in the county, Hillary Richardson. After flailing one of his own slaves to the point of severe abrasions, broken teeth and eyes swollen nearly shut, Richardson suffered a fatal counterattack. The slave, William, was tried for murder, but Hillary's reputation was detailed at the trial. Doctors testified of William's injuries, and multiple slaves were allowed the rare privilege of testifying of abuses against them, including savage beatings and the pulling of healthy teeth as punishment. The court was so horrified that it only found William guilty of second-degree murder and had him exiled from the state, rather than executed as would certainly have been both normal and quick in most cases. Nevertheless, despite Richardson's terrible reputation for abusing his slaves, when he came to the Briary slave auction with a pocket full of money, he was permitted to carry three of the congregation's slaves home with him. These specific infractions exacerbated by institutional slavery doubly magnified the exposure of the hypocrisy of the southern slave system, particularly with the church's involvement in it. It was impossible to maintain the myth of paternalism among slave owners when the section's most prominent moral leaders and institutions were the worst offenders in tearing apart families, neglecting pregnant mothers and young children, failing to instruct their own slaves in the Christian faith, and selling out the very lives and safety of their slaves even to the cruelest elements in the system for a ready buck. Yet this practice not only occurred, it was common. Multiple churches practiced it and depend upon it for revenue, and schools and colleges did as well. One student wrote of his time at Hampton Sydney College in Richmond, The worst kind of slavery is jobbing slavery, that is, the hiring out of slaves from year to year. What shocked me more than anything was that the church engaged in this business. The college church which I attended held slaves enough to pay their pastor, 1000 a year. There were four other churches near the college that supported the pastor, in whole or in part, in the same way. Both Hampton, Sydney, and the University of Virginia engaged in this practice, and both were alma maters of ministers like Robert L. Dabney, who would have known of the worst kind of slavery while benefiting from it as well. The Culture War If the ministers claimed to keep the church out of matters of state, and the statesmen nevertheless recognized the importance of the church to their work, 
During the debates that led to the 1850 Compromise, John C. Calhoun expressed the central role of the churches. The cords that bind the states together are not only many, but various in character. Among them, some are spiritual or ecclesiastical, the strongest of those of a spiritual and ecclesiastical nature consisted in the unity of the great denominations. Yet he blamed abolitionism in the churches for sundering the union of the denominations and thus the nations, Calhoun said. The strong ties which held each denomination together, powerful as they were, they have not been able to resist the explosive effect of slavery agitation. If the agitation goes on, the same force acting with increased intensity, as has been shown, there will be nothing to hold the states together except force. Calhoun's great compliment from Kentucky, Henry Clay, expressed the same sentiment shortly before his death in 1852. He appealed directly to the clergy. I tell you of this sundering of the religious ties, which have hitherto bound our people together, I consider the greatest source of our danger to our country. If our religious men cannot live together in peace, what can be expected of us politicians, very few of whom profess to be governed by the great principles of love? If all the churches divide on the subject of slavery, there will be nothing left to bind our people together but trade and commerce. That is a very powerful bond, I admit. But when the people of these states become thoroughly alienated from each other and get their passions aroused, they are not apt to stop and consider what is to their interest. If you preachers will only keep the churches from running into excesses and fanaticism, I think the politicians can control the masses, but yours is the hardest task, and if you do not perform it, we will not be able to do our part. That I consider to be the greatest source of danger to our country. These statesmen, however, knew they had already lost the battle for unity in the churches. Southern ministers and many, if not most northern ones, had quickly distanced themselves from abolitionism in the 1830s. This led to an informal split and continuing tensions over slavery from then on. By 1838, the Presbyterian Church had split. Baptists and Methodists had followed officially by 1845. These statements could hardly be true appeals for unity. They instead reflected a subtle version of the Blaine game. Unity in the South had been maintained by running all abolitionist preachers out of their states and passing laws against the circulation of abolitionist literature or speaking against slavery. The only voices still threatening the system were coming from the North, and the South desired to squelch those too. The plea for ecclesiastical unity provided Calhoun and Clay a convenient ruse to blame abolitionism for the South's stubborn entrenchment and utter defense of the slave system. 
Southerners would persist in this support of American slavery through the war and on into the creation of the Lost Cause mythology and its aftermath. As we will see in the following chapters, after the 1830 turning point, the Southern clergy led the way as the most systematic and ardent defenders of their slave system. They led the armies of God in the name of Orthodox Christianity, through the war, reconstruction, redemption, segregation, Jim Crow, and well beyond, in a war of Southern Orthodoxy against Northern abolitionist infidels. The general acknowledgement of and testimony to the activism of the Southern clergy in these areas abounds. Like Clay and Calhoun implied, and as many others did more overtly, Southern church leaders blamed abolitionism for their enhanced defense of slavery. In 1860, while war was almost but not yet inevitable, Presbyterian minister Benjamin Morgan Palmer preached a pro-slavery Thanksgiving sermon that was immediately published with the title, The South, Her Peril and Her Duty a month before North Carolina would declare secession. Palmer filled the pulpit to lament the probable doom of our once happy and united confederacy. Oblivious to the hypocrisy of a man defending Southern slavery, Palmer condemned Northern politics as a bastard ambition which looks to personal aggrandizement rather than to the public weal, and abolitionism as a reckless radicalism which seeks for the subversion of all that is ancient and stable, and a furious fanaticism which drives on its ill-considered conclusions with utter disregard of the evil it engenders. <laughs> Arguing that the nations have trusts assigned to them by providence, Palmer asked what the South's divine trust may be. He answered, It is to conserve and to perpetuate the institution of domestic slavery as now existing. Why must this system be indefinitely perpetuated? After all, had not the Southern clergy argued for some time under abolitionist pressure that if left alone, the system would be ended within as little as 20 years? Had not the slaves progressed so far in morals and ability that they were almost ready for freedom? Was this not mentioned often in defense of the system up to this point? As defenses of slavery often did, Palmer's contradicted this well-established argument. Blacks must remain enslaved indefinitely because... We know better than others that every attribute of their character fits them for dependence and servitude. Their constitutional indolence has proven itself in other places. When entrusted with freedom, Africans had converted the most beautiful islands of the sea into a howling waste. Once again, racism lay at the root of the issue. Not only did Palmer blame abolitionists for agitating the issue of slavery, not only did he reveal the racism and lies at the root of it, not only did he express the duty to perpetuate it, but Palmer seemed cognizant of his fire-eating countrymen's plan to expand slavery into surrounding territories, and he defended that too. For us... 
as now situated, the duty is plain of conserving and transmitting the system of slavery with the freest scope for its natural development and extension. To be sure, there was no misunderstanding. Palmer reiterated his points about the South's great trust as the cause of God and religion and the cause of all religion and all truth. Slavery must be protected and allowed to expand as far as needed. The South's trust was to preserve and transmit our existing system of domestic servitude with the right unchallenged by man to go and root itself wherever providence and nature may carry it. This unchallenged expansion of slavery should be subject to no limitations. Palmer would go on in that sermon openly to call for a secession from the Union to protect the trust of this slavery and its extension. South Carolina would accept that call only three weeks later. Palmer hardly stood alone. The Southern clergy almost unanimously supported the entrenched defense of the slave system as the cause of God and truth. When pressed on why they would support such an evil, they pointed to the allegedly greater evil of atheistical abolitionism. Some, in fact, pointed to the work of abolitionists with a sort of thankfulness for pushing them to study the issue and realize that they were more correct than they thought. In 1864, for example, the Georgia Presbyteries jointly reported an increasing interest in the spiritual welfare of the colored population. By interest in the colored population, they meant an intensified focus on keeping it enslaved. But why such a focus? The report explained. The long-continued agitations of our adversaries have wrought within us a deeper conviction of the divine appointment of domestic servitude and have led to a clearer comprehension of the duties we owe to the African race. We hesitate not to affirm it is the peculiar mission of the Southern Church to conserve the institution of slavery and to make it a blessing both to master and slave. Confederate leaders in the church and state recognized the importance of the clergy to the Southern cause and the war effort. Memphis preacher R.C. Grundy stated on August 21, 1864, that the Southern rebel church is worth more to Mr. Jeff Davis than an army of 100,000 drilled and equipped men. Likewise, William Porcher Miles, chairman of the military committee in the Confederate House of Representatives, testified in February of 1865, the clergy have done more for the success of our cause than any other class. They have kept up the spirits of our people, have led in every philanthropic movement. Not even the bayonets could have done more. Reviewing these quotations and many other like them, one modern historian stated, The church was the most powerful organization influencing the lives of men and women in the South in the days before and during the Confederacy. Clergymen led the way to secession. They were quite successful in helping the people to identify God, the right and the destiny of history with slavery, the Confederacy, and the war. 
They established the certainty that the Lord was with his chosen people in victory and defeat. They were responsible for the association of religion with politics and war. They unwaveringly supported the administration of Jefferson Davis. By personal example and by supplication, they exerted a tremendous pressure on individual conduct. And when war weariness caused the people to hesitate and falter, the men of God boldly attempted to sustain and strengthen civilian tenacity by a resort to the use of atrocity stories and fear technique. Toward this conclusion... One conclusive proof of the power of the church and its support of the Confederacy may be seen in the efforts of the Union generals to take over the appointment of loyal ministers and to superintend religious affairs in occupied territory. In most cases, difficulties arose because Southern churchmen had been actively engaged in promoting and supporting the war and continued to voice Confederate demands even after the regions were overrun by the enemy. Several churches had ministers displaced and some preachers were sent to prison. As no other group, Southern clergymen were responsible for a state of mind which made secession possible, and as no other group, they sustained the people in their long, costly, and futile war for Southern independence. Before the war, Palmer seemed to have suggested that the test of armed conflict could at least lead to a stamp of divine disapproval upon the sacred trust of slavery. As follows... With this institution assigned to our keeping, what reply shall we make to those who say that its days are numbered? My conviction is that we should at once lift ourselves intelligently to the highest moral ground and proclaim to all the world that we hold this trust from God and its occupancy we are prepared to stand or fall as God may appoint if the critical movement has arrived at which the great issue is joined. Let us say that in the sight of all perils we will stand by our trust and God will be with the right. This trust we will discharge in the face of the worst possible peril. Though war be the aggregation of all evils yet, should the madness of the hour appeal to the arbitration of the sword, we will not shrink even from the baptism of fire. Not until the last man has fallen behind the last rampart shall it drop from our hands, and then only in surrender to the God who gave it. After the South suffered its defeat, however, many of the clergy refused to repent of the institution or their racism. Instead, many followed the same course as the statesmen and journalists we saw earlier. The issue of slavery suddenly disappeared as a cause of their concern, though they had held it central before. Palmer, for example, had stated that slavery was the central trust of the South, that he would stand or fall with it, and that he would accept its fate, even if God tested it with the sword. After the settlement of the dust of redemption, however, Palmer joined in common cause with fellow pro-slavery ministers like Robert Dabney and Moses Hodge, baptizing statues of Jeff Davis and other Confederate heroes into the religion of the lost cause. Surrender this trust? Arbitration of the sword? Not so for the same Benjamin Palmer in 1882. 
Now he stood before a grand meeting of the Southern Historical Society in New Orleans, raising money for the preservation of the lost cause. Was there ever a cause lost which was supported by truth? And can a cause be lost which has passed through such a baptism as ours? The deeper problem was, however, that Palmer and others like him throughout Southern Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, and other churches had defended the necessity of preserving the slave system explicitly on racial grounds, appealing to the Bible, nature, reason, and a variety of anecdotes, historical and current. The war may have abolished the institution, but it did not abolish the racism at its root. The racism was left to manifest in other forms. While churches in the South were marching through the height of the lost cause mythology, some Northern evangelicals expressed their own racism in just as overt terms. Ohio minister Josiah Strong achieved national fame with his 1885 book, Our Country, its possible future and its present crisis, proclaiming the supremacy of the Anglo-Saxon race and its mission to the world, a clear expression of the white man's burden before Kipling coined the phrase. As General Secretary of the Evangelical Alliance of the United States, Strong doubled down in 1893 with The New Era, or The Coming Kingdom, quoting his own earlier work. It seems to me that God, with infinite wisdom and skill, is here training the Anglo-Saxon race for an hour sure to come in the world's future. The time is coming when the pressure of population on the means of subsistence will be felt here as it is now felt in Europe and Asia. And will the world enter on a new stage of its history, the final competition of races for which the Anglo-Saxon is being schooled? Long before the thousand millions are here, the mighty centrifugal tendency inherent in this shock and strengthened in the United States will assert itself. Then this race of unequaled energy with the majesty of numbers and the might of wealth behind it, the representative, let us hope, of the largest liberty, the purest Christianity, the highest civilization, having developed peculiarly aggressive traits, uh, calculated to impress its institutions upon mankind, will spread itself over the earth. And can anyone doubt that the result of this competition of races will be the survival of the fittest? It is not reasonable to believe that this race is destined to dispossess many weaker ones, assimilate others, and would the remainder until, in a very true and important sense, it has Anglo-Saxonized mankind. Whether black should be among the dispossessed or the assimilated, Strong did not say. Although he did say all were equally valued in God's eyes, he did go on to refer to immigrants as inferior blood, contributing to the deterioration of the Anglo-Saxon stock. From this one would assume he considered Africans in a similar way, even as necessary to save as a white. One need not guess 
whether racism manifested among Southern evangelicals throughout the Jim Crow era, the same racism and desires lying beneath the slave system and all of its torture manifested as the black codes and KKK terrorism, then later as lost cause segregation, Jim Crow and lynching, through all this, the churches of the South almost universally either sat in passive approval or engaged in active support. One study reviewed 1,003 Southern Baptist District Association meetings during the height of the lynching era and found only nine references to lynchings. Worse, of 117 districts in which actual lynchings had taken place and in which over half had pastors or other representatives from the lynching communities attending the meeting, only one single meeting even made mention of the incident. While the main denominations, including Southern Baptists at their highest levels, did condemn violence such as lynching, they nevertheless expounded with silence and inaction in the local churches. Though exceptions certainly do exist, examples of sunshine saints and summer parsons were common throughout the era. One questionnaire in 1935 asked 5,000 ministers if they had ever preached against lynching or written their congregation about it. Only 3.3% responded positively. In 1931, when a federal investigation of one lynching asked a local Presbyterian pastor, why he refused to cooperate, he responded that he was too busy saving souls in a local revival. The official denunciations at the upper conventions and assemblies, therefore, did little more than provide plausible deniability for local Baptists who sat idly by while violence proceeded or who found other more pious priorities than fighting it. As one historian puts it, apparently it was more discreet to preach on foreign missions and revival work than call the civic conscience to account. If the pulpits remained largely quiet on the extreme of lynching, their silence on segregation and race in general was deafening. One recent report from Southern Baptist historian T. Russell Hawkins confirms the passive agenda through the civil rights era. In his research, he found a cache of letters from white evangelicals in the archives of the National Evangelical Association, NEA, expressing concern the body had supported the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The NEA allayed their fears by reiterating its official position of neutrality. More often than not, such silence served to cover the actions of those inspired by those damaging doctrines which did in fact promote the type of atmosphere in which lynching thrived. White supremacy, black degeneracy, racial hierarchy, and segregation. White religious institutions in the post-bellum South were intimately involved in maintaining the existing racial hierarchy. Indeed, the predominant Christian organizations disseminated a theology rooted in white superiority and providing ideological justification for separation of the races became a primary function of white religious groups. 
Despite the few official declarations, the regular official silence and racist teachings allowed Southern white Christians to engage widely in every active form of racism, from the simplest to the vilest. Leveraging the biblical interpretations of the curse of Ham and Canaan, they had been taught, along with other scriptural justifications made popular since the beginning of the slave trade, the Southern Christians fought everything related to racial integration from the 1954 Brown decision to the busing of public school children in the early 1970s. Letters written to South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond during that era say things like, We in the South will not mix because it is not God's plan, and that it was against religion to mix. It's in the Bible that you're not supposed to mix races. Active opposition need not be so candidly racist either. Many evangelicals assisted in organizing citizens' councils to thwart civil rights initiatives while petitioning their political leaders to stand firm in their segregationist convictions. Ministers who resisted the pervasive sin faced the same fate as anti-slavery ministers in the antebellum era. Ministers who suggested integrating their churches were dismissed from their pulpits, and when their states, Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterian colleges finally desegregated in the mid-1960s, white evangelicals withheld both their financial support and their children from the institutions. The truth is that Southern Christians and clergy were intimately involved in the creation of the Lost Cause mythology, sacralizing the wartime sacrifices of white Southerners on the altar of the Confederacy. From the beginning onward, one Virginia editor of the Religious Herald in 1901 quipped, We think it may safely be asserted that God's hand is in the clear-drawn line between the races. That which God has put asunder, let not man attempt to join. Participation in this sacralizing, however, could mean far more than political activism, for every religion requires some form of atonement. In the white supremacist South, this often came in the form of lynching. While the tragedy and barbarism of lynching has been frequently highlighted, the full nature of the events has received less publicity. Far from mere spontaneous mob action, lynchings could be highly ritualistic assemblies, complete with their own versions of worship music, sermons, blood sacrifice, thanksgiving, and relics. One recent study summarizes, In many of the communities during our period of study, lynching was not a furtive act, nor generally regarded as a shameful affair. Rather, lynching served as a public spectacle that often took on carnival-like characteristics, festivals of violence. Not only did large crowds often gather to murder the victims, but also assemble to view the corpse, to mangle, further, or disfigure it in highly ritualized fashion, to pose for photographs, and to enjoy musical performances and orations. The emotional resonance of lynching was extended beyond those immediately present through a lively trade in picture postcards and souvenirs taken from lynching victims. 
from the beginning of abolitionism until the civil rights movement, with several afterward and even a few still today, partisans of the old conservative order consisted in the causes of anti-slavery and racism as a war between biblical orthodoxy and radical abolitionism, the latter of which the racist forces, mainly remaining in southern churches, considered as variants of Marxism, atheism, radical egalitarianism, or the French Revolution. As mentioned earlier, opponents of school desegregation in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1959, in a famous photograph, stand holding signs that say, race mixing is communism, and that race mixing is the march of Antichrist. From a similar protest in Nashville in 1957, a photograph captured one man holding a sign that said, Communists infiltrated our churches, now it integrates our schools. Second Peter 2, 1-2 The Bible verse warns of false teachers who secretly creep in to teach seductive heresies, deny Christ, malign truth, and lead people astray. For white Southerners in the late 1950s, white supremacy and segregation were gospel matters. To deny them was to deny the gospel and join the march of the Antichrist. Conclusion There was no time in America when the majority of Christians, particularly as led by their leaders in church and state, did not join, endorse, enjoy, and provide divine sanction for the evils of the American slave system. The few voices that demanded reform and change based upon applications of scripture met not only opposition but a deluge of scorn, not to mention physical threat from a vast ocean of pro-slavery ecclesiastical forces. While everyone agreed that abuses abounded in the system, from its earliest days in Africa through the horrors of the transatlantic trade and the Middle Passage to the shores of North America to the chains and whips of day-to-day life to sexual and physical abuses to the lack of legal protections for slaves' lives to segregations after freedom and much more, the majority of mainstream and evangelical bodies did not only do virtually nothing to stop it, they provided the most powerful and popular defense of the system, the religious one. A few faithful voices continued pointing out the obvious violations of God's commands, but like the Israelites at Sinai, they did not want to hear God's voice. American Christians thus preferred wandering in the desert, not only in their disobedience to God, but also where there is plenty of sand to bury their heads. These churches' failure regarding racism and slavery in America appears in contrast between the vast mainstream and the precious few who opposed, particularly in action. Church historian Lester B. Scherer points out that the Quakers were the only Christian body that applied the instruments of church discipline to rid itself of what it saw as the guilt of slavery. This is not quite true, for there is one other small group, the Reformed Presbytery of the United States of North America. This 1798 plant of Irish Covenanters were radically faithful to the demands of biblical law. As a result, they demanded immediate and unrestricted abolition of slavery, 
when the subject of compensating slave owners to effect emancipation arose, this devoutly orthodox sect proclaimed that the slaves, not the oppressors, deserved recompense. Indeed, they did not hold back on the sins of American slave masters. To delay freeing their slaves was to implicate yourself more and more deeply in robbery and murder. These faithful Presbyterians, though, were few in number and easily marginalized by the pro-slavery hegemony of the evangelical mainstream, including their Reformed and Presbyterian cousins. By 1840, the few that had populated South Carolina, for example, had suffered the same fate as most radical abolitionists. They were effectively run out of town or left before they would have been. When the parent body of this group in Ireland and Scotland wrote to the Southern Presbyterians to oppose the abuses of the institution in 1847, John Henry Thornwell, as moderator of the General Assembly, recorded that he hesitated to even read the documents to the Assembly and condemned them as the work of either ignorance, vulgarity, or fanaticism. He then led the Assembly in telling the Covenanter correspondents in so many words, to shut up and mind their own business. We desire no instruction from foreign lands. We know and understand our duty. Threatening a 19th century equivalent of ghosting or blocking someone on social media, he said correspondence with the churches of Ireland and Scotland would cease unless they drop the subject of slavery. He admitted that abuses existed in the system, but absolved the church of any responsibility in confronting them. To infer that the Presbyterian Church in this country, because it tolerates slavery as an existing institution, licenses the cruelty of tyrants, or opposes the oppression which inhumanity may inflict, is foul injustice and reproach. We stand upon the platform of the Bible. God's word recognizes the relation of master and servant as a relation that may lawfully subsist and defines the duties incumbent upon the parties. The church as a spiritual body should attempt no more and can do no less. The entire failure of the church outlined in this chapter may be summarized by the church's covering up of her refusal to discipline her members when it counted, to speak specifically of the abuses of the system, to hold her members and broader society accountable through its relevant means of discipline and prophetic preaching, and to cover those failures by an appeal to the church's spiritual nature. Men like Thornwell relied on doctrinal subterfuge. As men and Christian ministers, we are bound to seek not the freedom, but the salvation of our race. The whole failure of these churches can be seen in the contrast between the position of these Quakers and Covenanters on one hand, and the vast array of establishment-influenced forces on the other. The marrow of that contrast lies in the willingness to follow the example of our Savior, to suffer shame and reproach for radical faith and obedience. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. 
Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.